2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: Most people choose medical professions because they want to help people, and there is an innate reward when we help people. It's been described as exquisite empathy, like that moment where what you say to a patient and where they recognize that they are really understood and being helped that the benefit is both to the patient and to the physician.
2: There may not be a time in our lives when it's more important to know we're being understood by another person than when we're in a doctor's office. It's not an exaggeration to say our lives could depend on it. If we're going to follow our physician's advice, there has to be a level of trust and we need to know we're being heard. Relating and communicating in the doctor's office seems to us like an important enough subject to devote a special series of three shows to it. Our first conversation is with Helen Reese, whose research has answered some important questions. Questions like, how important is empathy in the doctor-patient relationship? Can empathy be taught? Her answers are encouraging and exciting. We met for our talk at our studio in New York. Helen, I really love this chance to talk with you on the podcast because we have we have a history together. You, you were in my book, and I'm in your book, The Empathy Effect. And the the byline is Seven Neuroscience Based Keys for Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Work, and Connect Across Differences. That's a that's a subtitle almost as long as mine.
3: <laughs> it's almost as long as the book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how the publisher always wants to put the whole book on the cover. <laughs> But the empathy effect is really at the heart of so much. I'm, in a way, I think it's at the heart of communicating. How did you know? You had, I, I love origin stories. We all do. The, the Bible starts with the origin story, and we all are drawn to them. How did you realize how important empathy was in your work? Because I remember your graduate student came to you and said, I want you to get hooked up to your patients. <laughs> Well, is that right? And what was your reaction to it? That's what he well, said.
3: Well, yes, it, it was uh, one of the psychiatry residents who um, wanted to do a study to see if we could measure empathy between doctors and patients. And he his theory was that if we hooked up people to physiologic monitoring, like heart rate and skin conductance, that we could see whether people actually uh, harmonize in sync when they feel empathized with, and if they don't, when there is no demonstration of empathy. And when he first approached me about this, um, I said, uh, "I'm not sure I want to do that."
2: <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your what was your resistance?
3: Well, you know, it's one thing. To have yourself videotaped with any patient, which in psychiatry is a very foreign concept, but then to also sort of have a lie detector test going on yeah, while you because
2: would- that, that skin the skin uh, inductance is that yeah. what you call it is yeah. really measuring how much in a way how much you sweat and the micro way.
3: Yes, that's right. So we both wore these non-invasive leads on our fingers that measured these micro amounts of sweat, and that's called um, skin conductance monitoring. Right. And, when, and we're also always releasing sweat, whether we realize it or not. But the degree that we release it is directly linked to our, um, to our physiologic activity. And the reason it works in a lie detector test is that most people, when they're lying, are in a state of cognitive dissonance, which creates anxiety and uh, stress.
2: So you finally agreed to be hooked up to the patient. (laughs)
3: Yes, he said, "Please, I need twenty subjects. Will you please?" And I realized, like, this is such a great opportunity to learn something. So um, I and you know almost twenty other people agreed to do it, and it was fascinating.
2: So what 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 was the nature of the problem you were working with with the patient?
3: So with, and the, it was a
2: regular psychiatric interaction, right?
3: Yes, it was one visit, and it was with um, a person who had been trying to lose weight, and we weren't having much success with that goal. But we were having success with her learning to be more assertive and to kind of set limits on people who were ridiculing her about her appearance. And when we did this study, I recognized that there were times when her activity was far more intense than mine.
2: So you, and there were moments where you were not in sync.
3: Yeah, where we were clearly not matching. And I went back and looked at the video to see what was happening during that time. And... This person was making subtle movements that I had just, you know, not been paying attention to. Like what? Like flicking her hair or making a funny sort of chortle, like, ha, 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 like that. That just, you know, it was like all these pieces of evidence were hiding in plain sight.
2: So when she was making these gestures that you were missing, her tracings showed activity activity and yours didn't because you weren't picking up on what you were seeing
3: right and so when i realized that there were these patterns to the you know the manifestations of anxiety that i had been missing in our continued work i would say what were you feeling just then and and instead of this going right by i would learn that she was feeling you know uncomfortable or maybe a little ashamed and we got to a much deeper level And the results were that that year, this person who had never lost one pound and only had gained, actually lost 40 pounds that year.
2: Wow. And that really stemmed from your paying attention to what you were seeing.
3: It was from tuning in at a much more perceptive level, which I believe is the first step in empathy. First, we have to open our eyes to what's there we can't empathize with things we can't perceive.
2: Is that when you began to realize you could train other doctors to do this?
3: That's exactly right. When I saw the tracings and I realized how not how only how much I learned about this one relationship, but how transferable this, you know, awakening could be for other physicians. I, I realized like doctors like science. And if you can actually show a tracing that shows when you're in sync and when you're not, that is way more powerful than, you know, saying when you see a patient, look them in the eye and shake hands. Yeah,
2: yeah <laughs> right. Not just saying, trust me, this makes you more empathic. You can show them the tracings. Yes. You work with all kinds of physicians, not just psychiatrists. Is that right?
3: Yes. In fact, I got pretty excited about this because my own patients in my practice were really complaining about feeling unseen, unheard, and treated like a number um, in their in their visits.
2: Visits to their- To
3: their doctors and their surgeons. Right. And it was becoming a very pervasive theme in my mm. practice. And I realized that The same thing was showing up in the media, you know, in major newspapers about doctors wanting their doctor, uh, patients wanting their doctors to have more empathy, and I realized that what I was seeing was actually a national trend. And when I realized that we had tools for teaching this skill, which really in medical schools this has not been a focus,
2: is it more so now, or is there is there more attention to? Training and empathy.
3: There's more attention now because the um, you know the epidemic of burnout is on everyone's mind.
2: I don't think people realize how se- severe a problem burnout is. I didn't when I first heard the figures. I was astonished. I just heard the other day, for instance, that two thirds of physicians would not recommend this as a life to their children. That's true. That's astonishing.
3: It's really sad because it used to be a profession everyone would want to pass on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it has an effect not only on the, the, the physician who feels often depressed, not, not feeling that they're accomplishing anything meaningful, but it can lead to mistakes uh, with regard to the patient's well-being. A, a disengagement, just to try to survive and keep your head above water. I guess
3: exactly, and I think that one of the things that's lost in um, you know some of the trends of using so much technology in the room, like typing into the computer, many times when I've observed um, patient. Physician visits. The first thing the physician does is go to the computer before even saying hello.
2: Before saying hello, hello is such a simple thing to say. You
3: would think, but there it's, it seems like saying hello to the computer is is more <laughs> it's important. More important. <laughs> uh, but a lot of this is just, I think, a lack of awareness because people yeah. didn't used to be like this. And
2: so, but the computer is in the room, and there's an obligation, really a strict obligation, to enter information into the computer. And uh, as as I understand it, it, it's not uncommon for the computer to be against the wall and have and make the doctors sit with his or her back to the patient.
3: Well, that that's actually very true. And I would say that anyone designing a hospital or clinic or anyone renovating one, to be sure to make the Face-to-face interaction with the patient a top priority. Mm. Otherwise, the patient's sitting there feeling like they're sort of like a side a sideline instead of right. the main event.
2: And even with empathy training, they don't get a chance if their back is to the patient. They don't get a chance to do what you learned to do in that uh, that encounter with your patient, where you realize that you could pick up on clues if a if a patient tells a doctor about symptoms and has an expression on her face that, that really means there's more to tell you than what I just told you, and you miss that, you don't get the full story.
3: That's true. And if, if, some, if a physician is recommending a medication and misses a facial expression of disgust, uh. which probably means there's no way in the world I'm going to take this, because the last time I did, I was vomiting for three weeks. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so if, if you don't see that look and the patient doesn't speak up, you might hand a prescription and think you're all set when you've actually just broken, you know, a, a partnership.
2: And, and the, the, the underlying sense of trust seems to me to be really important and if the if the doctor is actually paying attention to the patient patient is I think m- my guess is more likely to trust the recommendations of the doctor
3: well Alan, you're really getting to some of the really important consequences of a lack of partnership and trust, and that is poor medical outcomes. So our team at um, MGH did a systematic review. MGH is what? As Massachusetts General Hospital. We did a, um, a systematic review and a meta-analysis of all randomized control trials that claimed that relationship factors helped hard health outcomes such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, asthma, lung infections, et cetera. And we found 13 very excellent rigorously done studies that showed that just by changing the level of trust and cooperation between the doctor and the patient, they could get significant improvement in some of our most vexing health problems in our country.
2: And what effect, this has been a curious um, issue for me, what effect does that have? I mean, it's clear it has a good effect on the patient. Does it have an effect on the doctor as well? Does the doctor feel better if, if he or she's able to uh, show empathy?
3: You know, um, that's a really great question. Most people choose medical professions because they want to help people. Like, they're people-oriented individuals, and... There is a, an innate reward when we help people. It's, it's like a reciprocal experience of feeling good. And it's been described as exquisite empathy, like that moment where what you say to a patient and where they recognize that they are really understood and being helped, that the benefit is both to the patient and to the physician. And, I mean, this is true in any, like, two-person interaction. People love to help, and yeah. when you feel helpful, you want to help more.
2: You're getting signals back from the other person. It's not. It's not just a one way communication. It's a, it's a real partnership that starts to be established. I imagine
3: exactly because our emotions are contagious and most feelings are mutual. Mm. So if if you make another person feel understood and good and that you're you know an ally in their journey that gratitude is just going to come back and fill you up. And that's the loop that I think has gotten broken by not paying attention to patient emotions.
2: So how do you get doctors to do that? What kind of training do you give them?
3: Well, I developed uh, an empathy training program. It was based on a neuroscience fellowship I did at Harvard, where I got to take a deep dive into the neuroscience of empathy. And I realize that so many of the ways that we naturally connect are teachable. Mm. And so, um, you know, they start with basic things like, you know, acknowledging one another's presence. And that's done by, like, making some eye contact instead of running to the corner in the room.
2: So often when we say something that we feel is important, we look away from the person we're talking to to make sure we get it right. And we're in our own world. We're communicating with our own brain rather than with the other person. It's probably better to say it sloppily to the person than perfectly not to the person.
3: That's that's a really important point you're making. I think most people are don't realize that they're doing it. It's almost like they're reading their thoughts from the back of their brain
2: right, instead right. of
3: communicating directly. Right,
2: they're, they're, they're processing the words rather, right. than, rather than really making an interchange with you. Because if the other person is uncertain about what you mean by it, If you notice that, you can alter what you're saying on the go, but you can't if you're looking away.
3: Exactly, which is the title of your book. If (laughs) I understood you, would I have this look on my face? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So the the empathy training that I developed, um, I knew no one would pay attention to it unless we tested it in the most rigorous way. And so um, I I got some grants to test this training in six different specialties at Mass General Hospital. And with this brief spaced education intervention, we had patients rating the doctors before and after the training.
2: Oh, so you really got the data on this.
3: It wasn't self-report. It was what did the patients say? And the doctors were randomized by a computer to either receive the training or not. Mm -hmm. And then after about a month after the training, we asked the patients again. And their ratings of their physician's empathy and compassion and listening and showing concern for the whole person, not just a body part, significantly improved.
2: So how did you do it? What the do doctor comes into the room. How much time do you have with the doctor to try to up his empathy or her empathy?
3: Well, our training um, eventually got translated into an online learning, so that doctors can take the, the courses at a, in a self paced way. Mm. Um, I ended up f- founding an organization called Empathetics that delivers this training online. Mm-hmm. And we also provide classroom training to reinforce what they've learned. And so it's three hours of self-paced learning that's supplemented by other interactive training. So you
2: get them both... Uh, in, in both modes, right? both online and in person.
3: right. It's called blended learning. Uh-huh. And our training is um, very amenable to other supplemental types of training, like the kind of training that y- that you do with improv. So anything that deepens the connection between people mm-hmm. that can be paired with the scientific uh, training that that came out of the neuroscience research, can bolster the training.
2: So however you do it, it's not only possible to train doctors to have more empathy, it's a valuable thing to do. But here's an important question. Is it possible to have too much empathy? Helen explores that question when we come back. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to our conversation with Helen Reese. One of the things that I think you found that's really interesting to me is that the doctor is in danger of something by having more empathy, which is getting swamped by the feelings of the patient, which I suppose can lead to burnout.
3: You know, Alan, that's a very important point. And I think it's important for everyone to understand that empathy has both cognitive thinking components and feeling or affect emotional components. Right. And some people are out there saying, let's get rid of emotional empathy and just use cognitive because people will get too burdened by other people's emotions. I think that's a real mistake, I think that what we really need is self-regulation skills so that we can manage our own emotions. But if we try to wipe emotions out of a patient-doctor relationship, I mean, you might as well be talking to a robot. So so some degree of emotional connection, I think, is absolutely necessary.
2: How can we go about regulating what we're getting from somebody in distress? Mm -hmm.
3: So... The key to self regulation is a first awareness of that you're in a dysregulated state. So we train to be aware of when you're most likely to go into fight or flight mode, and that is when patients criticize us, refuse our recommendations, um, don't come. Uh, so, what what's never really been made clear to physicians or physicians in training is how threatening these things are. Mm. They're as threatening as somebody coming at you with a fist in your face. When when a, a patient says, "I don't like your lousy medication; it made me feel so sick," you know that people think that's having no impact on the physician, yes. but it, it's basically saying you're not helping me, and your and your medicine is lousy. And so we have to train them to be aware of when they're actually getting emotionally worked up.
2: You know, I'm seeing a moment in my life in a new light now as you talk. A doctor said to me once, you're on the borderline with this thing, uh, so take this pill. And I said, for the rest of my life? He said—and he he stopped shocked that I was objecting, that I had the idea that— I Maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. And he didn't—for a minute— I was surprised at his reaction because he said, well, yeah, you know, and, and I, I'm realizing now as you speak that I must have put him in a, an uncomfortable state in that moment.
3: Well, I, you know, I, I think this is so important because, you know, because of the knowledge they have, doctors are in a more powerful position yeah. and they're they're comfortable with that. They're not so comfortable when they're in a helpless position. And when patients put doctors in a helpless position, like, what do you mean? I don't want to take this. That's startling. Yeah. And that's kind of what we need.
2: And that puts them in fight or flight.
3: Yes, without even like maybe realizing it. But if they were hooked up to skin conductance, they would start spiking. (laughs) So what we like to do in our training is have people reflect on what type of interaction really... Is very uncomfortable for me. For some, some doctors don't mind patients crying. Other doctors just freak out. Some of them can deal with anger. It's like, yeah, I'd had an angry mother. I know how to deal with that. Others are like, I hate it when, when patients get angry with me. So I'm, I'm,
2: I'm not getting the connection a little bit that I can understand if uh, the patient is crying and you get drawn into that in an uncomfortable way and you start, you need to regulate your own emotions. Are you saying it also applies to when the the patient says, uh, I don't want to take that pill, and you have an emotion, emotional response to that that you have to regulate as well?
3: Well, see, not everybody, when a patient is crying, will get drawn into the sorrow. Some people will get drawn into helplessness mm. or even anger. Like, mm. What are you doing crying now? I'm trying to help you. So the, the, the emotion of crying can elicit very different reactions. If it's empathy and I want to help you, you know, that might be more comfortable than, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do with this person who's now crying. What, how do I get them to stop? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So learning what your own triggers are is really key to self-management.
2: So I hadn't thought of it that way. That's very interesting. Even if your response is anger or withdrawal, that's as dangerous and something that needs to be regulated just the same as if you get drawn into the quicksand of, of emotion. F- f- feeling what the patient is feeling to an extent that you, you it, it inhibits your own functioning.
3: Exactly. Most people are not like at the level of awareness at what triggers them. They're going through their day. They might say, oh, that, that person just drove me up a wall, and they, they're venting, but they're not realizing, like, I got really dysregulated. And so we do teach techniques through breathing through taking a moment, through knowing when you need to talk to a colleague and talk something through, that this emotional burden and load has to be relieved. Otherwise, it, it can just mount up.
2: I've found, I think I've found, and I'm, I want to test this out on what you've you found, is that when I'm more empath- empathic, I think I'm more aware of my own feelings as well as those of others. Do you find that or or am I kidding myself?
3: Well, I think you have thought a lot about this. Just it's clear that this is a topic that you you know you give great consideration to. I think it's it can go both ways. The more empathic you are, maybe the more you sort of sink into like the helplessness or hopelessness. But if you're aware th- through cognitive empathy, mm-hmm it's almost like you're watching yourself at the same time that you're with the person. So you have like two modes of awareness going on. And what helps me is to remember what my role is.
2: So Mm -hmm. like in my
3: my psychiatric practice, I hear a lot of pain and suffering. And I, I am very attuned to that. Like I know that I resonate with that. But I also have to like say to myself, I'm not here to just like, be crying with you, I'm here to understand this and to show my curiosity and learn more. So, if we get triggered, we might not want to learn more.
2: Exactly, we would disengage.
3: So it's a it's a pretty sophisticated dance.
2: Do you find uh, what I've what I think I've found that? Empathy doesn't necessarily produce compassion, but it is the basis for compassion if you want to be compassionate.
3: Uh, Thank you for asking that, because I think there's so much confusion about empathy and compassion. Empathy is necessary in order to show compassion. Empathy is the perceptive arm, you know, seeing a face, hearing the tone of voice, being moved by a person's predicament. That elicits empathic concern, which is a state of mind of like, oh, I care about this. And compassion is the response that is visible to the world. That's what comes out of us. So it's like a loop.
2: And doctors probably already have the impulse to be compassionate because they want to help. But without, it seems to me, I I think I hear you saying that without the groundwork of empathy, it makes it harder for them to show the compassion they would like to show in order to be of help.
3: It's like trying to get output from a speaker without inputting anything. (laughs) Like like if your gaze is at a computer screen and and (laughs) you're not actually experiencing the person, it's very hard for compassion to come out of you because you've kind of missed the input.
2: This thing of actually paying attention to the person you're trying to communicate with sounds so dumb. It's so simple that it's it almost seems absurd somebody says, "Well, what's the best way to communicate?" and 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 my impulse is to say, "Pay attention to the person you're trying to communicate with." It's 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 sort of basic. This you you and I I think independently discovered something that helps us be empathic. Maybe, maybe it's been known by and studied by other people. I don't know, but I, in order to enhance my own empathy, which drains away if I don't work at it, and we can talk for a second about why that happens. But in in order to to increase my empathy, I found actually looking people in the eye. And trying to figure out what they're going through, trying to name their emotional state, really helps me focus on them and seems to generally increase my empathy altogether. And you you do that yourself too, and you, you recommend that to people, don't you?
3: Looking people in the eye or meeting someone's gaze, and I don't mean staring or glaring at people, but really meeting someone's gaze it goes back to mother infant bonding, like the gaze between a mother and a baby is uh, what releases oxytocin, right. which is the bonding hormone so if 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 you're talking to someone and not meeting their their gaze, something is not happening that is naturally supposed to unfold when when we're with people but and the idea of naming emotion that is very emphasized in psychiatric training like we actually have oh, to write that. that down.
2: Really, you have to write you have to name it and write it down. It's
3: it's part of the what's called the mental status exam and there's an A for affect and like you you have to write down was the affect sad, confused, angry, intense, whatever adjective you want. But that orients you to the emotion of the person. And in in typical you know non psychiatric visits affect i've never seen that as like one of the questions in the review of systems yeah and and i think that's really missing something
2: important and it's it's common i think when you first start to to ask yourself what's the what's the emotion the other person is going through what their affect is it's common to have a very limited vocabulary i mean i i know when i when i tried to do it in the beginning i think well, is the person happy or sad? You know I kind of had two <laughs> two choices, but there are there's a very wide range of emotions that people can go through, so
3: you know we talk a lot about perspective taking, like trying to understand where they're coming from and and try to guess or imagine the emotion. But there's also perspective getting, which is just asking.
2: that's good yeah that's very good why does it happen that no matter how empathic we are it seems that in the course of a day or two that empathy can go down we can lose it why do we lose it
3: You're bringing up the point that it's a very mutable trait, and people have the greatest empathy when, I call it, when their tank is full. (laughs) And think about your car. It'll go the farthest when your tank is full. It's not going to go too far when it's nearly on empty. And that's how empathy works. When we take good care of ourselves, I call this self-empathy, then you know we have a full reservoir to be more perceptive and to be more attuned to the needs of other people but if we're not taking good care of ourselves and you know medical training does beat beat it out of you to a certain degree cuz you're exhausted you have more work to do than you ever feel you can accomplish that's the risk of you know your tank being pretty low and that is why there's so much emphasis on wellness and self-care coming into medical curricula now mm. Because um, it's been a a process of training that really has beaten some of the humanity right out of it.
2: And it it sounds like you're saying that stress, certainly the stress that doctors undergo in their training and in the practice of their profession, the stress uh, probably puts you in a fight or flight mode and you have different hormones coursing through you that are not conducive to empathy, I would imagine.
3: Exactly right. So cortisol is the stress hormone, and cortisol is like an antidote to empathy because when you're stressed, who are you focused on? You're focused on your own tiredness, your exhaustion. Like You become very centered on your uncomfortable feelings, and that doesn't open up a big window into the feelings of others.
2: When you're looking at somebody trying to figure out what they're feeling, what they're going through. Is there something in just the effort to do that, do you think, that makes for a better connection? In other words, if I, as I look at you now and I try to identify what it is you're going through, I, I'm probably paying more attention to your face and you pick up that attention that I'm spending on you and it must do something to you. I mean, for instance, we have we just when I was saying that, and right this second, I'm seeing more connection come. But you're very connected, but there's a little more connection than I saw a few minutes ago.
3: Well, I think when we focus our attention in a very uh, acute way, even more connection opens up. But it's it's almost like we have to remind ourselves to do it because a lot of us are living in our in our own heads. And I think we all know that when we're talking with people, we're often thinking about what am I going to say next instead of like, how am I going to just stay with this right here in the moment? And see, this is why when you said earlier, these things are so simple, they're so obvious, like, well, you know, but these, these things may be simple, but they're really difficult because paying attention and focusing on any one thing for longer than about 10 seconds is a real challenge. And it's just getting more challenged today.
2: Yeah, some, it reminds me of the the evaluation of uh, some brain scientists that the present moment only lasts for about five to seven seconds, and if you can't stay in that constantly, you're drifting into the future. What'll I say next? Or the past? What did I do wrong? Or how can I how can I challenge this person's idea? really listening to the other person, you not only get a good diagnosis probably, but you also get a chance for you to be partners in this exchange. I mean, do you find that happening to you in real life, not just in your professional life?
3: You mean really listening? Yeah. And then developing And
2: and having more of a partnership with the person you're listening to.
3: Absolutely. And I think- what I'm realizing is like tapping into what that other person cares about can bring about extremely rich conversations.
2: Hmm. Like what would be an example of that?
3: Uh, Well, like I was talking to someone at a conference just uh, on Saturday who uh, was saying, Oh, I'm going to be leading some mindfulness workshops. You know, could you let your, the residents at your hospital know about it? and i could have just said oh yeah give me your card i you know i'll pass it on and and instead i i said that's really fascinating what got you interested in doing this work mm. and i learned how much training this person has been doing how excited she is about the work she's doing and how it's transformed her life and it made me way more motivated to you know sort of share her workshop
2: ah uh, yeah yeah.
3: Because through curiosity and understanding. That's
2: the word I was going to say. that it, It's interesting. We, we often shrink from contact with another person and settle for small talk. And some of us don't even like small talk, but small talk at least can start the ball rolling. But the, the ball really gets momentum when we have some curiosity about the other person. Who is this person? What's going on in there?
3: Curiosity is the biggest gift because most people do want to be known and most people want to be seen.
2: And everybody has something worth contributing. That's when they talk about the wisdom of crowds, the idea that if you have many different perspectives converging on a question... You get really often very good answers because you have all these different perspectives. That means that this person you're talking to is maybe a perspective you haven't heard before. And it could really be a contribution, a gift. But you don't get the gift unless you pay a little curiosity and attention to the person.
3: I couldn't agree more.
2: Well, I sure got a lot (laughs) of A lot of gift out of you today. That's I, I think our I think our time is coming to a close. But do you mind doing what we do with our guests? You probably have heard the podcast, and you know there are seven questions we'd like to ask. Do you mind?
3: Um, I don't remember all of them. But. No, you
2: don't. I'm going to I'm going to ask them to you one at a time, as okay. long as you're okay with it.
3: All right, I'll do my best.
2: What do you wish you really understood?
3: Um, I wish I really understood. How to excite people about the life of the mind instead of the well, life of the Well, you got me tasks. excited. Well,
2: <laughs> <that's good. laughs> so you're on the right track. <laughs> what do you wish other people understood about you?
3: I think one of the things I wish they understood is um, that, you know, th- The way I've lived my life is what Eleanor Roosevelt recommended, which is every day do something that scares you. Oh, (laughs) wow. And that, you know. So
2: you're in a constant state of fight or flight. Well,
3: (laughs) it's more like a constant state of stepping up to opportunity and Mm. stepping up to invitations. And I guess I really recommend that even if the invitation seems a little bit daunting or like stretching you out of your comfort zone, it is so worth it.
2: Oh, that's great. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: You know, I guess the most startling question was when one of my psychiatry um, teachers I I was meeting with asked me, what are you doing here? Oh. And—
2: You really have to go down to your roots with that one.
3: That's exactly right. Like— Whenever I'd say oh, I'm going to medical school or, you know, going to be – people like, oh, that's so great. It's such a wonderful profession. It was always like such a foregone – but when she said, what are you doing here? I think every person should ask themselves, and no matter what they're doing in their lives, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this thing? And how is my participation in this maybe going to make a difference?
2: Okay, here's the next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: (laughs) Well, two weekends ago, I was in a convenience store, and the person behind the clerk noticed a BMW pulling out, uh, and he said, I have a BMW, and he started to tell me about, like, this (laughs) litany of things that were wrong with it. And he was going on for, like, five minutes, and I was, like, clutching my bag, you know, trying to give...
2: (laughs) Trying to give him signals. Yeah.
3: So I said, oh, gosh, you sound really disappointed. You know, have you thought about getting rid of it? Thinking that might end the... And then he just said, no, but, you know, I just... It drives like nothing else. It's such an amazing car. And so I said, "Um, it sounds like you're pretty ambivalent. And then he had this big smile on his face, and he goes, that's exactly it. So I think trying to get to the emotion that they're trying to express kind of helps to stop the train going that's out of so the station. That's so
2: interesting that, that, that in a way, the way to stop a compulsive talker is to listen a little more deeply.
3: Exactly. It's <laughs> sort of like one of those paradoxes. Yeah.
2: So is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy
3: Even people that we all know about in our world who seem to lack it totally um, and don't elicit much empathy, I feel really sad Mm -hmm. to not know the experience of the richness of empathy. So I would say I really can't think of um, anybody—I am very challenged with people that have destroyed others and— committed horrible acts of cruelty and I can only imagine that living in that brain cannot be a good experience
2: certainly not good for others so right. it, it's hard to feel empathy I guess but
3: very hard
2: how, how do you like to deliver bad news in person on the phone or by carrier pigeon <laughs> uh, in person you really like it
3: I, I just feel like if you don't if you don't see the whole reaction, you can get so off base and really end up botching it.
2: What, if anything, would make you end a friendship?
3: You know, I think friendship is based on love and reciprocity. And the boundaries of that can be quite stretched, but when they get stretched to the point of being broken, where you realize someone really does not have your best interest at heart and it's not in any way um, a a reciprocal relationship. I think that really can break a friendship.
2: This has been so much fun for me. I I really, really love talking with you.
3: It's been great for me too. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Helen. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Dr. Helen Reese doesn't just train doctors to have more empathy. She's interested in helping the rest of us, too. Helen is the author of a new book called The Empathy Effect seven neuroscience-based keys for transforming the way we live, love, work, and connect across differences. I think it's a really useful book, and I was happy to join in when Helen asked me to write the foreword. The Empathy Effect was largely inspired by Helen's work as the chief scientist for empathetics, which is a highly innovative training program in empathy and other interpersonal skills. She helped develop the program as a researcher at Mass General Hospital, you can learn all about Empathetics in Helen's new book at empathetics.com. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Coston, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, we continue exploring how empathy makes for better medicine. I'll be talking with one of the most empathic doctors I've ever met, Dr. Carl Van Devender. Carl has found that really listening to a patient can be the most important part of a medical exam. Many people will leave a doctor's office feeling there's been no connection. But what I've learned is if you make an honest attempt, not some phony attempt, but if you're actually struggling working to understand a person, it goes much better. You, you actually can help them. They used to say laughter is the best medicine. Maybe empathy is the best medicine. Listen in next time to my conversation with Dr. Carl Van Devender on treating a patient as a person and not as a collection of test results. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.